Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. And actually act like adults for just a few minutes. That's one of the big parts of that feeling when you drop your kids off with the sitter. But on the other side, you're leaving part of your heart there, right? And you're leaving part of your brain there because you're thinking about what's going on. You're thinking about how the kids are doing and you're hoping against hope that the kids will at least somewhat be on good behavior while you're gone. School teachers know this feeling too. You remember when you were in school and the teacher would have a talk with the class and say, tomorrow or next week, I have to be out of the classroom and I'm going to leave you under the care of a substitute teacher, right? And some of the people in in your class, like they immediately just knew this is going to be awesome because it's gonna be nothing like the class that we're used to. And the teacher, your permanent teacher, would plead with you and say, please, no, no, seriously, please, please be on your best behavior while I'm gone. You know, like I would rather you misbehave while I'm here, but that, that wasn't how that was going to work out. I mean, I remember some of the substitutes that would come into our classes in high school, and some of them ran a, a tighter ship than others, and some of the students would cause all sorts of problems for the subs that would come in who couldn't get control of the classroom. And all the while, that permanent teacher was just wishing that you would behave as if they were still in the room, right? I mean, the the teacher who works with you all year, they wanted the students to act like they were right there watching like the principal of the school was right there watching. And there, was always, there were always some kids in the class who tried. There were always some kids in the class who tried to, to not only do the right thing themselves, but they even tried to get the rest of the class to quiet down. How did the rest of the class respond to that? You know, like, no, you're not in charge of us either. More often than not, it didn't happen. Because you know the old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play, Right? And there's just something about human nature that makes it seem tempting, makes it seem easy to bend the rules when we think we can get away with it. But we don't usually get away with it. Because when I was in school, every time that we had a substitute teacher that showed up, whether or not they enforced the rules, whether or not they enforced much discipline in the classroom, they always took notes right? They always took notes about what was happening and who was doing what and who was out of their chair and who wasn't paying attention and who wasn't doing the work. And even if that sub didn't wield much discipline in the classroom, they were watching and they were leaving a record. And so when the permanent teacher came back, the teacher knew the score. The teacher knew what had really gone down. And once the teacher that was in charge got back, things didn't usually go very smoothly for the kids who acted as if nobody was watching. You know, for the last few weeks here at Heritage, we've been in a series of messages that I've called, Tell a Good Story. 
and for most of us in most cases, when your life on earth reaches its end, there will be people who knew you who will probably gather to tell the story of your life. There might be a viewing, there might be a memorial service, there might be a dinner, and people are gonna sit around and they're gonna laugh and they're gonna cry and they're going to recall the ways that you interacted with them, the impact that you made, the way that you made them feel. And if you want the stories that people tell about you to be complimentary, then you gotta live the kind of story that they would compliment, right? And that's what we've been getting after in this series is how do you use your life to tell a story that's truly good? How do you use your days to tell a story that's meaningful? But I wanna tell you this morning, there's a whole lot more at stake in this question. There's a whole lot more at stake here than simply whether your life story is gonna make your friends and family smile, whether your friends and loved ones are gonna remember you fondly. Because the story that you're telling with your life and the way that you're living out your days, it's making a permanent impact on the world. It's going to leave a mark. And I want to tell you that God looks at that mark. That God's paying attention to the impact that you are making on the world around you. And when God looks at the mark that people make, when God looks at humanity, there's a very specific and particular characteristic that God is looking for. God's reading your story, reading through every line, every day, every page, and looking for evidence of one particular characteristic in your life. There's a specific feature of a human story that God is especially interested in. And it goes like this. God pays extra close attention to the way you treat other people when you feel like you could probably get away with treating them poorly. God looks extra closely at your story and pays extra close attention to the interactions and the engagements that you have with people when you're in a situation and you think, you know, I could probably treat them like just an object or like lesser than. I could probably get away with treating them in a way that I would not want to be treated. But God's looking. God leans in and God looks at your story and God uses a magnifying glass and looks at the way that you interact with other people. And when you have the chance to get ahead at somebody else's expense, when you have an opportunity to take advantage of somebody else, when a situation arises and you could exploit somebody else's weakness or their blind spot, God leans in and takes a keen interest in what you decide to do in that moment. In fact, throughout the scriptures, throughout all of the stories and the moments when God has engaged with humanity and revealed himself to humanity, throughout the scriptures, we find claims and evidence consistently that the way you behave in situations like that 
means more to God than the way you treat your family. The way you behave in a situation when you could take advantage of somebody else means more to God than the way you provide for your kids. It means more to God than your engagement in church. It means more to God than the way you behave in worship service. And to show you what I mean, I want to open up to just a few of the myriad passages that show us exactly what God's priorities for his people are really like. One of the most consistent themes throughout all the books of the Bible, as God has revealed himself and his character to humanity, one of the themes is that God is concerned for people who are vulnerable. God is concerned for the kind of people who often get mistreated. God is concerned for the kind of people that it's easy to mistreat. The kind of people that it's normal to mistreat. God's concerned for the kind of people in this world who are easy to overlook. And every time God has set out expectations to his people, every time God has delivered law and instruction to his people, God has made provision for people who are at risk of being mistreated. God's expectation was that the people in the community who were the weakest, the people in the community who were the neediest, the people in the community who were the most susceptible, that they would be taken care of. But here's the thing. By definition, vulnerable, vulnerable people, they are susceptible to being mistreated without any recourse. That's what it means to be a vulnerable person. They are susceptible to being mistreated and not being able to do anything about it. And the Old Testament prophets, the people who were messengers for God, who came and delivered God's message to the people consistently, time and time again, pointed out that the people of Israel were treating the weakest people in their society poorly. And the prophets said, your treatment of the weak people in your society, the way you engage with people who are easy to mistreat and overlook, it actually stands as a roadblock to your worship. The prophets would say, the way that you treat the poor and the needy and the vulnerable in your community stands as a roadblock that cuts you off from God's blessing. God spoke through numerous prophets time and again and continued to make his case against the people. Malachi chapter 3, 5, here's what God says. I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness Against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars, I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. Because these people, and he's talking about the ones he's testifying against, he says, these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You could look at the words of another prophet in Isaiah chapter 1. God said, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. The language here says it makes me sick at my stomach. 
As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and all your special days of fasting, they're sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings, but God says, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. This is what God says to people who are showing up faithfully to worship. God says, I, I'm sick of your worship because I see the people in your community who can't fend for themselves and they're suffering. He says, I'm sick of your worship. Get that out of here and go do what I really asked you to do. You can look at another prophet, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and following. God says, I hate all of your show and your pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. I won't accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all of their choice peace offerings. When you bring me your very best, he says, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I won't listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice. I want to see an endless river of righteous living. I could share a bunch more with you. I could go on and on and share with you longer readings and additional examples from multiple other prophets who spoke on God's behalf to the people of Israel. But these three just give you a little taste of the message that the prophets were consistently delivering about justice. You see, when the prophets were sharing these messages from God with the people, they were speaking to a culture that was full of corruption. I don't know if it'll sound familiar to you, but here's some of the ways that the prophets described that society. They said there were workers in that society who weren't being paid a living wage and they were unable to support their families. They said in that society there were destitute orphans and widows who had no family to take care of them, no welfare system to care for them, and they were on their own. The prophet said there were immigrants who were living in those cultures, in those societies, who were treated as outsiders, and they were barred from commercial and legal activity. They were essentially beggars, unable to make a way forward. The economically advantaged people in Israel were thriving. They were living in luxury. They were enjoying themselves, and they thought to themselves, we're secure in God's blessing." God has taken such good care of us. We're secure in this because we're doing what God said. We're showing up at the temple. We're doing the sacrifices. We're observing the feasts. Like we're following all of the instructions. We made sure to get all of the measurements right. We did everything that God outlined in the law, but God said he wasn't interested in their ritual. He wasn't interested in their religious observance. In fact, their religious ritual was offensive to God because God, God saw that the equality in their society was out of balance. You know what out of balance feels like, don't you? You ever driven a car that had a tire that needed some weight adjusted on one of the rims there? Everything was real shaky. You ever driven a car that needed a front end alignment? And it seemed like at slow speed, 
maybe not that big a difference. But if you go to make a turn, if you try to get where you want to go, boy, you start to feel it. And then you notice that you tried to merge onto the highway and you started getting up to those faster speeds and you thought, I can't ignore this. Because the faster I go and the more I try to act like there's not a problem with my vehicle, the greater the problem becomes. And the reality is that if you ignore that problem for long enough, it'll lead to more problems with your car. That's what inequality does in the world. Inequality causes a disruption of peace. Inequality results in people suffering. Inequality causes some people to carry a much greater burden in this life and in our society than other people. Inequality happens when the world is not operating the way it was designed to operate. There's a problem in the machine. When people are stepping on each other rather than taking care of one another, that's when inequality shows up. When one group of people controls most of the money, when one group of people makes most of the decisions, when one group of people has all of the resources, when one group of people has the power, that's inequality. And it's critically important. If you want to know God, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, it is vitally important that you understand that God cares about inequality. God gets up out of his seat about inequality. God gets sick at his stomach about inequality. And when God sees inequality running rampant, what God desires, what God promises is an infusion of justice. What God desires is for justice to be restored to the world God created. You know our problem, though. We can't agree on what justice is. That's our problem. All, I mean, we, we see that there's issues. We feel the imbalance. We know that the alignment is a problem. We just can't agree on what justice looks like. Sometimes we talk about justice and we're all on the same page because we're talking about retribution against evildoers. Some heinous crime happens in our society. A child suffers. An innocent person dies. Boy, we like to talk about justice. We like to talk about bringing perpetrators to justice. We like to see the sheriff get on TV and say, we're going to find everybody that was a part of this incident and we're going to bring them to justice. This is the kind of justice we call retributive justice. And it touches a nerve deep inside of us because as a society... When this kind of incident happens, we feel like we've been violated. And we come together and we respond to the disaster, we respond to the crisis, and we want to see balance restored. And when we've been violated, the thing that seems to make balance feel like it's been restored is retributive justice. 
Justice makes a lot of sense to us in a moment like that. Sometimes, though, sometimes in our society when we talk about justice, we're talking about bigger, more widespread issues, more complicated issues. Sometimes our cultural conversation turns to matters of distributive justice. This is the question of justice that focuses on how resources get distributed. And when the conversation turns to distributive justice, we find ourselves not so much on the same page. We find ourselves with more tension, more distance between us, a communication gap. Because everybody's got their own idea of what sounds right and fair. Everybody's got their own idea of what justice ought to look like when it comes to distributing resources. And you can bet that almost everybody would agree what sounds right and fair to us is to receive as much, at least as much, as everybody else receives, regardless of how much we already have. That's what sounds right and fair when we talk about distributing resources. And you can see how that just lives in tension, how there's going to be conflict. Because if I want to receive as le at least as much as you do, if not more, and you want to receive at least as much as I do, if not more, we're going to have some tension, right? Of course, those aren't the only kinds of justice Sometimes our, our culture needs to have a conversation about procedural justice. Sometimes we need to talk about how people are treated by the powers that be. There's a lot of inequality that happens in the way that people are treated by the systems and the authorities. And unless you or someone you love has been mistreated, it can be hard to perceive that there's any inequality at all. But there's this fourth kind of justice, this fourth type that's called restorative justice. Boy, this one causes a lot of heartburn. Because we start talking about restorative justice and we talk, start talking about taking steps to make amends to correct injustices from the past. And restorative justice means honesty and transparency. Restorative justice requires confession and accountability, and truth be told, those aren't always very easy to come by. So justice is complicated. Justice feels subjective. What feels just to you might not feel just to me, and when we dig deep enough, we might uncover some injustices that I've committed, some injustices that I've been a part of, some injustices that have benefited me, some that I was aware of and some that I was completely oblivious about, but it's no wonder we have a hard time having these conversations because justice is complicated. Justice is supposed to be about fairness and impartiality. It's supposed to be about equality and goodness and neutrality. And each one of those terms demands a standard that you could measure them by. How do you measure fairness? How do you measure neutrality? How do you measure goodness? How do you measure impartiality? 
We need a standard for justice. There's all sorts of things we could try. Historically, throughout human history, there was a time period when what the king said was assumed to be the just answer. We trusted the king, we trusted the judge to be the definition, the working definition of justice for every situation. Sometimes in our human history, probably even today, most of us have leaned on laws and constitutions, but more often than not, we've leaned on our own opinions, our own common sense to decide what justice looks like. But the problem with all of those standards, of course, is that they're localized, they're variable, they're individualized, they're subjective. The problem with every one of those standards is that if the law or the Constitution is the standard for justice, then the law in one city could be different than the law in another city just a few miles away. And justice could mean two totally different things. The problem with trusting the the king, the judge, to apply justice is that there's a lot of kings and there's a lot of judges. And when you have kings and judges, there's other people who are fighting to become the kings and the judges. And they have a different idea of what justice looks like too. And there's no consistency. There's no standard. Justice might mean one thing to one person and one thing to somebody else, but that's just not a real standard for justice. We need a better standard than that. And so I want you to consider this. I want you to consider that when Jesus came and said, I am the way and the truth and the life, that Jesus was identifying himself as the one true standard for justice. I want you to consider that the standard for justice that God operates with looks just like Jesus. That Jesus is exactly what God looks like. Jesus is how God chose to reveal himself to humanity. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, then justice is whatever measures up to the law and the instruction of Christ. That sounds good to say in church. That sounds like the right thing for a preacher to say. But before you hitch your wagon to that statement, before you decide that you agree that Jesus can be our standard of measure for justice, let me explain something to you. That the law of Christ is exponentially more demanding than any king or any judge or any law or any constitution has ever dreamed of being. You see, there is no law in any legal system that demands that you love somebody. No law in any country, in any civilization that says you have to love somebody. But the law of Christ demands it. 
The law of Christ insists on it. In fact, this is the bedrock of the entire thing. There is no decree in any constitution globally, historically. There is no decree in any human civilization that says you have to be a person of empathy and compassion. There's no law that says you have to do that. In fact, the law of the nation we live in would almost stand in opposition to that. The law of the nation we live in would say you're free to live however you want to live. But that's not the law of Christ. The law of Christ says that empathy and compassion are what it means to be a citizen in this kingdom. There is no law in this world, there is no law on this earth among the people of this world that compels people to show grace to one another. But the law of Christ says that's our currency. That is how we interact with one another. That we trade and barter with each other in grace. The law of Christ sets a standard for justice and a standard for righteousness that I've got to tell you is unmatched and unparalleled by any other human law or authority past or present. There's nothing out there like the law of Christ. No code that's so demanding. No rule that's so difficult to follow. It's more thorough than the United States Penal Code. It's weightier than the Bill of Rights. You can live your entire life in perfect obedience and submission to the law of the United States and still be in grave violation of the law of Christ. Because the law of Christ compels you to do what the government can't make you do. The law of Christ calls you to love even the people who are trying to take something from you. The law of Christ compels you demands of you that you show honor to the people who seem to deserve it the least. The law of Christ calls you to do the right thing even when everybody around you is doing the wrong thing. The law of Christ says that person that lives next door to you, that person you call your neighbor, you have to love them even as much as you love yourself. The law of Christ expects you to watch out for the people who can't watch out for themselves. There was a guy that grew up in the same house as Jesus. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jesus' brother? I mean, to share bunk beds with Jesus, you get up every day. I mean, you know, my imagination runs wild. Like, you get up every day and Jesus has already made the bed. And he's already made breakfast for mom, you know, like all of this kind of stuff. And you're just sleepy and wondering where the coffee is. Like, what would it have been like to be the brother of Jesus and to grow up in that house? But over time, James, the human brother of Jesus, came to be convinced that his brother was the Messiah sent from God. He had a life-changing, worldview-altering experience that convinced him that the one he had shared meals with and picked fights with and gone to sleep next to all of those growing up years was the chosen, anointed one that God had sent to save the world. 
And after all of that time, breathing the same air and eating the same food as the Son of God, after all of that exposure, sitting right next to God in the flesh, James came to this realization and he said, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. He didn't talk about going to church. He didn't talk about the kind of songs we sing. He didn't talk about who was in charge. He didn't talk about any of the kind of stuff that we usually find ourselves disagreeing about. He talked about helping people that can't help themselves. He says, this is what God really wants. I've been around God longer than just about anybody, he says. And this is what God really wants. is for us to care for the people who can't care for themselves. I remember all those times in high school after we had a substitute teacher and the permanent teacher would come back and she'd read the notes and she'd pay attention to the names and if you were somebody that caused problems for the sub chances are you were going to find yourself in trouble with the teacher or maybe even being sent to the assistant principal's office later that day but if you were the kind of student that tried to be honoring to the sub, that tried to do the right thing, you'd find that that teacher would come to you and say, thank you so much. Thanks for acting like it was a normal day and like I was here. Thanks for behaving the way that I would have asked you to behave if I'd have been here. Thanks for making it easy for the sub who really didn't have all that much power and authority anyway. Jesus taught us to pray and said, Father in heaven, let your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. And God's will is that we would be people who pursue justice. God's will is that we would be the kind of people who use Jesus as the standard of what justice really looks like for us. And it's going to be more demanding than any other justice conversation that's happening out there. It's going to be harder. Because every other justice movement, every other justice initiative, every other justice task force that exists exists in conflict with somebody else they say we're going to keep fighting for justice until we get our way we're going to keep fighting for justice until our view wins the day but the standard of Jesus' justice says we're going to keep loving the opposition until they won't be our opposition anymore. We're going to keep loving them until they quit fighting. 
It's a totally different paradigm. But the reason you're here, the reason we showed up this morning is because it's the paradigm that changed our lives to start with. Paul says that while we were still sinners, while we were actively in opposition to God and God's will for our lives, that Jesus showed up without any malice, without any judgment, without any hatred, without any inclination toward revenge, Jesus showed up and gave of himself. John 13 says at the Last Supper, when Jesus knew that all of the disciples were about to turn their backs and hightail and run away from him to avoid being associated with him in his hour of need, John says, Jesus knew that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and so he took off his outer cloak and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he began to wash their feet. This is our story. That when we were people in opposition to God and God's will for our lives, Jesus showed up and said, I'm just going to love them until they won't hate me anymore. I'm going to love them through their opposition. And then when they've come to receive my love, I'm going to invite them to show justice to the rest of the world with me. This is our story.